The scripture reading today is uh, first an admonition. I mean, first a word of gospel, actually. A gospel declaration from the book of 2 Corinthians. And then we move over to one of the pastoral letters for a word of admonition. Always remember it's in that order. First, we learn about what God has done for us. Then we understand what we are to do for the Lord and for others. Hear now the word of the Lord. First, Second Corinthians. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And now a word of admonition to the rich. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. The hymn that is before us that we sang just a moment ago is the hymn, Thou Wast Rich Beyond All Splendor. It was written by a fellow by the name of Frank Horton. He lived in the latter part of the 19th century and up until 1972. You may not know his name, but you know the organization that he was director of for many years, and that's the China Inland Mission. That was the great mission organization founded by Hudson Taylor. Frank Houghton was learning more and more as he ran that organization in the mid-1930s that the missionaries in China, the Christian missionaries, were being harassed, persecuted, imprisoned, and banished by the young communist movement, the Red Chinese movement that was beginning to force its way in on that great nation and would eventually take it over about a dozen or 12 years later. He took a trip into one of the big provinces in Central Asia in order to encourage the missionaries and to strengthen them under this oppression and persecution and banishment. And on his way, he thought he needed a, a hymn or a song to go along with his meetings. And he wrote this hymn. It's interesting to me that in nowhere in the hymn does he talk about their troubles. Nowhere in the hymn does he talk about the difficulty that they're going through. Instead, what he does in the hymn is he speaks of Christ. And there is nothing more encouraging to the genuine child of God than to hear about Jesus, about Christ. He profiles Christ. He points them to Christ. In verse 1, 
He talks about the humiliation, talking about Christ, thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, becamest poor. Then he speaks in the second stanza about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Thou becamest man. And then in the third stanza, he speaks of Christ as king. It's hard to think of Christ as king when you're living in a world that's being taken over by thuggery and violence of socialist dictators. But you must always remember Christ is the Lord and the sovereign and the king of all. And he speaks of worshiping him. Worship the king, savior and king, we worship thee. What could be more encouraging than to think about Christ? Actually, what living the Christian life is all about, I think, is just as the years go by, you see more of Christ and less of everything else. Christ becomes finer, more beautiful, more attractive, more heroic, more resourceful than anything else. The eyes want to be turned upon Christ in any circumstance and situation of life. And you begin to see everything from a Christian or a Christ-like perspective. That's really what growing in Christ is all about. Paul is anxious for the churches that Christ be formed in them. It's difficult to know about Christ without an intense study of his word and not just the New Testament because Christ is all through the Old Testament and everywhere we look in the sacred scriptures we're beholding some facet, some perspective, some feature of Jesus Christ and him alone. It drives us back no matter what. And even the activity that we deal with in life is affected by our understanding of Christ, who he is, what he has done, how we relate to him, what our future is in him, what our standing now is in him, our identity in him, and so forth. So Paul points people to Christ when really what Paul's trying to do is raise money. <laughs> I'm going to wait till I hear a chuckle or a smile. It's, it's kind of uncomfortable in here at this moment. Maybe it's a shawl. In there. I don't know. Yeah, Paul's looking to raise money. And here's what he's raising money for. The church back in Jerusalem... And in Judea is in starvation mode. In fact, they've had trouble from the very day that Christ was crucified all the way until the day in 70 AD when Titus, the Roman emperor, will raise the walls and destroy Jerusalem. 
There's an exactly 40-year span from A.D. 30 to A.D. 70, 40 years, a generation that did not pass until all those things that Christ promised in the Olivet Discourse were completed. But all that generation, those 40 years, the church in Jerusalem suffered. It suffered greatly because it was in the very shadow of the temple and it was in the very heart of old, crusted, rebellious, stiff-necked, unbelieving Israel. The Israel that had not believed the gospel, had not followed the promises of God, had not acknowledged Jesus as their king, but rather had crucified him and were now constantly persecuting the people of God, the Christians in Jerusalem and in Judea. But moreover, because of the difficulties, the crops around that area had not made well, neither were there the kind of imports that there used to be from Egypt and other places that were bread baskets that fed Israel in the first century. We know this from just reading secular history. There was a famine. There was privation, starvation in Judea. And Paul, on his missionary journeys, and he's now in the middle of his third missionary journey, is taking an offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And he's been at it for over a year. And the young man that has assisted him, the scripture says, this, and this all comes out of chapter 8 and 9 of 1 Corinthians, which is the context of that embedded scripture that we just read, and we'll look at it in just a minute. That particular instance, Paul was trying to persuade through this letter to the Corinthian church of Corinth, the church in southern Asia, Achaia. He was trying to tell them about the diligent efforts of Titus, the young associate to whom he writes a letter later on in life. Young Titus has taken on the responsibility, the scriptures call it readiness. He has a readiness, he has an eagerness, he has an earnestness to, to get this project going, to collect this money. And Paul is writing to them and telling the Christians there in southern Greece of the incredible generosity of the Christians in northern Greece or in Macedonia. And he tells about how they have been faring. It's interesting, he says in our text, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich. But he writes to the Corinthians and he says in verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And the word grace will be used about a dozen or more times in these two chapters. And the word grace is the, is the word for gift. In fact, if we would bring it over and translate it into English, what it literally means in the original, we'd have a little better understanding. Grace gets kind of fuzzy and and, uh, and a little bit uh, amorphous out there as we think about it. It's just gift. It's what the word means. Every time you hear the word grace, it's the word gift. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. It's the same word over and over. Gift, gift, gift. And we've thought a lot about gifts in the last few days, haven't we? We've been giving gifts and receiving gifts. And this is the time of the year when 
gift giving moves into the billions of dollars. And the gift of God, the grace of God in giving Jesus Christ is still at work. Here's just another facet of the gift and the grace of God at work. And that is that he has been moving the Macedonian people who are in the severe test of affliction, yet they have this extreme poverty, but they've overflowed in wealth of generosity. He says they've given beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for favor in taking part in the relief of the saints at Jerusalem. Here were the, this impoverished people, the churches of Macedonia, Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, those churches in that region, weren't very well off. And yet they were begging Paul and Titus, they wanted to participate in this collection that was being given for the saints at Jerusalem. It says, but first they gave themselves to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Said accordingly, we've urged Titus that he get started and that he continue to complete this work, this act of grace. As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and we know this is true of the Corinthian church because it says so in 1 Corinthians. They were a gifted church. They were a fairly boomtown church. They were kind of a mega church, fast and growing. And you have all of these wonderful things, but participate and excel in this act of grace. So as Titus began to take this offering, the Macedonian church had begged to participate and they had given all they could afford to give and more. And Paul was very impressed with what they had done. And he writes ahead to the Corinthians telling them that it won't be long, Titus will be coming your way to collect the offering. And I want you to remember what the Macedonians did by way of sacrificial generosity. And now, a little later on in the text, he's going to say, now here they come, don't make me look bad by not giving money. I mean, Paul didn't, didn't back away from it. And the reason is, is because this was a collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem, who was the, 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 the very seedbed of the Christian church. Every blessing that flowed to the world and the Gentiles had flowed through Jerusalem. And it was the fountainhead of God's grace upon the earth. And so he felt that the saints in Jerusalem needed to be helped. And this is the way he says, your abundance at the present time will supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness or there may be equity. It's not that they give an equal amount, but they give sacrificially. Now, it's interesting to note, and you can make what you want of it, but the collections that are spoken of in the New Testament always involve an organized, systematic collection of funds and then a deliberate dispensing of the funds, and usually through apostolic care and apostolic authority. We see this back in the book of Acts when some of the people sold land and they took the proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet, and then the apostles distributed to the saints according to their necessity and when their need, what they had need of. And this is the way the money flows in the, in the New Testament. Those that have give, and Paul's going to describe that it's to be 
generous. It is a willing gift. It's not an exaction. Each man must make up his own mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And it's going to redound to your benefit. God is able to make all gifts amount to you so that you have sufficiency in all things at all times and may abound in every good work. You'll be enriched in every way because of your generosity. And I'm just reading right out of the text in, in 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. I'm not making any of this up. Paul was in that sense a prosperity gospel preacher, wasn't he? Sure, because that's the proper understanding. God has richly bestowed spiritually first, first to the Lord, and then materially. And if even if you're not prospering materially, as I speak to you this morning, nothing says that there's not some prosperity for you in the near future. Nothing says that you may one day after proving yourself faithful to the Lord first in His kingdom, that He'll add all these other things to you. So you need to know the doctrine. You need to know the truth. You need to know the process of how it goes about. And Paul is concerned that they understand the distribution and the collection of money is a thought-through thing. It's done intelligently. It's not just a willful, emotional, capricious scattering of your money to wherever. And it's not just to every cause under the sun. It is for the saints in Jerusalem. Now Paul, as we read the book of Acts, knows that he's going to deliver this offering eventually. He has Titus, who's heading up the operation, He's the stewardship chairman. And we have a, a, a brother that's mentioned who's famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. We don't know who that is. It was probably Luke. That's just my opinion. <laughs> because he was with the party at this time and Luke was intensifying his understanding of the gospel in writing the gospel of Luke as well as the book of Acts. And we think he was a well-known and, and an extremely interesting preacher to listen to. And we think it probably was Luke. He was a traveling companion. And then there's another brother that's spoken of who had high integrity and was trusted by all the churches in that region. And then Paul speaks of the brothers. There are others. So we got a group of people that's responsible for this money. And the reason Paul is, is he wants to be sure that we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but in the sight of all men. So they had this, this group of people who could be trusted who were driving this enterprise and doing everything they can to conscientiously and appropriately collect this, this what became a very large sum of money. Not only that, I just think that the brothers that are spoken of were some old boys that went along with them that was armed to the teeth. Just had to be. That's the way the world worked in that day. Robbers set up at every pass in every corner of the world. And you couldn't get through there without either taking a beating or paying a bribe. And there's no doubt in my mind that God's money was protected on this journey. We know it made it all the way to Jerusalem eventually. So there's a lot of things, there's a lot more here and we're out of time. But I, there's a lot more things here in this, in this uh, passage about money, about generosity of heart and spirit and how it's to be handled and, and how it is to be administered and what it is to, to be used for. And the passage, it says over and over that it is to glorify God. In fact, he even calls it, for you will be enriched in every way in all generosity, 
which will produce thanksgiving to God. That sounds kind of like a biblical phrase. It doesn't mean a lot, but thanksgiving to God is a, is a biblical New Testament term for worship. The sacrifices are the sacrifices of praise and the sacrifice of thanksgiving, not the sacrifices of bulls and goats and anymore. True worship is thanksgiving to God. And he goes on to say, for the ministry of this service, and the word that service is the word liturgy, worship. This enterprise of collecting money and delivering it properly to the place where God wants it to go and to do the work in relieving the need. This is God's work and those that are participating in it are worshiping God. When a dollar went into the collection plate that Titus was passing, God was praised and his name was honored and lifted up. Supplying the needs of the saints, which is overflowing with many thanksgivings to God. Isn't that a remark? I wish we had time to go into it. This is a real good uh, couple of lectures here on, on stewardship and Christian giving. I'm going to stop right here because it's a good time to just mention one thing. Paul had said in his gospel portion of this passage, verse 9, you know the grace of God. He's informing them about the, the generosity of the Macedonians and the operation of the collection and its delivery and its stewardship and so forth. He's telling them a lot of things along a lot of good spiritual principles. But here's something that you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake, He became poor. so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's an, an interesting and a wonderful summary of the gospel. The Lord of glory who was rich beyond imagination, in the portals of heaven, sitting upon a royal throne, being there for all eternity with his Father, lacking nothing, being the supreme Lord of the universe, began to give it up. He began to sacrifice it. He began to set it aside. He began to wave it off. And he began to set aside one privilege, one expectation, one facet of his riches after another in order to come and do for us what had to be done. I'm just going to list things the Savior sacrificed in order to save us. And I didn't make this list up either. I'm not one bit original. Y'all know that. Everything I know is what I've read somewhere. <laughs> I read this out of the larger catechism of our Westminster Assembly. Uh, questions 46 to 56 is, is the, the area on the uh, uh, questioning concerning the Lord. But listening to the impoverishment and the suffering and the sacrifice of Jesus. First, he emptied himself of the glory, riches, and position that he held from all eternity past with his Father. He emptied himself. He laid it aside. He underwent a conception that was going to have a low reputation. In a woman of low estate. Mary was not a princess. 
His birth, he became fully human and all of the limitations thereof. The family into which Christ was born was of ordinary deprivation. In other words, a working class family. If he'd have been born into a wealthy family, he might have had a little sense of what he, what he deserved, what it used to be like, what he used to enjoy in heaven. But no, he laid all that aside and became a member of a hard working class family. He came and submitted himself under the law. He wasn't free to do his own will. He had a whole set of regulations placed upon him the day he was born. He was born of a woman. He was born under the law. And he had to keep perfect, perpetual, and personal obedience to that law. It wasn't easy, but he did it. He rendered perfect obedience. He kept the law. He endured indignities. He was mocked. He was cursed. He was made fun of. He was ridiculed. He was disputed with. Every time he opened his mouth to say something, there was always a group of people that were ready to argue with him and, and, and dispute his claims. They were ready to spin everything he said into some, something he didn't say. They were trying to trap him constantly. He didn't even have the dignities of civil rights that you would expect to have. He laid it aside and endured it all. He endured the temptations of Satan. Satan tempted him with respect to the world, with respect to his flesh, and with respect to even worshiping Satan. And he endured that. He endured and laid aside and moved into the infirmities of the flesh. Just being an ordinary human, he was weary, he was hungry, he was disappointed. He was a man with grief. I just wonder, I know that grief is one of the things that is involved in a loss and if you've lost a whole lot of money or a spouse or a loved one, or if you've lost a, a, a really important football bet, whatever it is, there's a little bit of sense of grief and downcastedness to it. And Christ had given up everything. Imagine the grief of his human soul. And then we now get to his suffering. Let me just list it. Betrayed by Judas, forsaken by his own disciples, including those that had claimed they loved him and would die for him. He was scorned by his own people, rejected, condemned by Pilate, tortured by the soldiers and scourged. That's his suffering, his death, the terrors of the cross. If there's any kind of death you want to dread, the cross was designed to torture, not to kill. There are faster ways to kill a man than to hang him on a cross. It was designed to embarrass, to humiliate, to make a spectacle, to bring shame, and then to torture for hours and even days. He underwent the powers of darkness, that horrible feeling of being under the control of Satan and the prince of the power in the air. He had you. He was crushing the heel of the seed. And in his sufferings, in his humanity, that had to be a horrible, horrible thing upon his heart. And finally, he received the full blow of God's wrath. God forsook him. 
He didn't say, Lord, have you forsaken me? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then buried under the power of death in the state of death. The Old Testament has one passage after another in prose and poetry about the pit, the abyss, the deep, the darkness, the heart of the earth, the belly of the whale. There's three days of burial. That's how much it cost him. When God gave His Son, that's what He gave Him to endure for us. I don't want to hear any more talk about cheap grace. 